Upon graduating with honors from the University of Texas at Austin, Dr. Larry Dossey has worked as a pharmacist while earning his MD degree from Southwestern Medical School in Dallas in 1967. Before completing his residency in internal medicine, he served as battalion surgeon in Vietnam, where he was decorated for valor. Dr. Dossey helped establish the Dallas Diagnostic Association, the largest group of internal medicine practitioners in that city, and was chief of staff of Medical City Dallas Hospital in 1982. The author of nine books and numerous articles, Dr. Dossey is the former executive editor of the peer-reviewed journal Alternative Therapies in Health and Medicine, the most widely subscribed to journal in its field. The primary quality of all of Dr. Dossey's work is scientific legitimacy with an insistent focus on what the data will show. Before his book Healing Words was published in 1993, only three U.S. medical schools had courses devoted to exploring the role of religious practice and prayer in health. Currently, nearly 80 medical schools have instituted such courses, many of which utilize Dr. Dossey's works as textbooks. In his 1989 book, Recovering the Soul, he introduced the concept of non-local mind, mind unconfined to the brain and body, mind spread infinitely through space and time. Since then, non-local mind has been adopted by many leading scientists as an emerging image of consciousness. Dr. Dossey's ever-deepening explication of non-local mind provides a legitimate foundation for the merging of spirit and medicine. The ramifications of such a union are radical and call for no less than the reinvention of medicine. Welcome, Larry. Anthony, thanks for asking me. It's a delight. Oh, thank you for having me come to your hotel room, too. This is a real, a real pleasure. Calling for the reinvention of medicine. Yes, it's not uh, a call for the uh, abolition of medicine, uh, as some people uh, who are quite angry and hostile toward <laughs> surgery and drugs and so on call for these days. It's, mm -hmm. it's a call for a re-looking, a rethinking, uh, with an appeal to elevate consciousness to some level of prominence where it just hasn't enjoyed for uh, the better part of the 20th century. Back when I was uh, training in internal medicine, uh, one didn't use consciousness-related terms very freely. Uh, we had no concept of what a healer was. When we talked about consciousness, we uh, talked about people either being awake or not awake in coma or asleep. Right, you know, right. this, this was painting with a very heavy brush. Uh, we had no idea, you know, 30 years ago, the, of the nuances of consciousness and how they could enter into everyday life and really by just a slight shift make the difference in life and death. We're in a whole new playing field now. So what slight shift are you talking about? Is it just by a difference in how we attend? Well, let me give you an example. Uh, the meanings and uh, uh, the meanings that we take from life, from something very simple, such as the meaning of your job, uh, right. what that symbolizes and represents to you can make huge differences in your health and even whether or not you're going to be alive or not. Mm -hmm. There's something that I've written about called the Black Monday Syndrome. Uh, this refers to the unfortunate fact that more people die in the United States of a heart attack around Monday morning, eight to nine, than it is. Really? Any, that's right. Than at any other time of the week. The, so the meaning of going back to, to your job, uh -huh. the meaning of Monday morning, eight to nine, what that symbolizes or represents is just crucial. Mm -hmm. If it represents something horrible, you, you really should be uh, alarmed about that. That should be attended to as, aggressive, as aggressively as we'd look at high blood pressure or mm -hmm. cholesterol or smoking or something like that. But the problem we've had is that we have just lent second-class status to consciousness. So these things just don't show up on our radar screen. So if someone has a job that they're not completely enthusiastic with, that's a, a direct reflection on the health of the body. Exactly. I think the key insight is that these things, such as emotions and attitudes and belief systems and so, mm -hmm. aren't just things that float around in your brain from your clavicles upward. They, they, they do enter into the rest of your body and affect every major organ system in the body, uh, such as the uh, cardiovascular system and, and also the immune system. Are you familiar with the work of Dr. Ernest Rossi? Yes, I am. I've read Rossi's work, and I think highly of it. Yeah, and also Candace Pert, too. Both of them, I've taken a seminar with Dr. Rossi, and it's been really quite remarkable about the messenger molecules, 
You know, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, and we're going to get, uh, you've just published a new book called The Extraordinary Healing Power of Ordinary Things, and I want to come back to that in a minute. But one of the ordinary things that we don't think about in, in biology is to attend to our cells. And we're really a colony of cells, aren't we? We are a colony of cells, and uh, these cells do not exist in isolation. Mm -hmm. The fact that we could attend to them uh, suggests that there's some sort of communication between higher functions, uh, brain functions, uh, and the rest of the body. Candice Pert became a world figure in trying to work this out in her book, The Molecules of Emotion. Uh, we see this, for example, most uh, dramatically, I suppose, in heart disease, where uh, if you have a heart problem, and this has been looked at at the Montreal Heart Institute, uh, you better think about whether you're going to be pessimistic or optimistic about how you're going to do. Because uh, if you look at people for two years after they've been diagnosed with a heart problem, pessimists have eight times the risk of dying during that two-year period than optimists do. The fact that you're pessimistic can be practically a death sentence uh, in certain situations, such as in certain forms of heart disease. Now, who would have thought this, you know, 30, 40 years ago when we didn't even want to talk about the fact that consciousness could make this, this sort of difference in, in your life? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's, uh, you know, the, the playing field is certainly different now than it was 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. Well, with the advent of uh, quantum physics and the, the actual, well, quantum physics has been around for quite a while, but it's the practical applications of that. And I wanted to also make mention of somebody who I admire really a lot uh, was Milton Erickson who was really, in his way, a consciousness artist, and in my opinion, is going to actually have maybe more of an impact on medicine and psychology than Freud even. Well, I think that's right. Erickson's day, if it hasn't come yet, it's certainly here, because uh, I've known people who uh, studied with Erickson, and uh, they tell tales of his clinical skills that uh, actually make him look like something of a, a seer or a, a someone with powers that the rest of us just don't share. But he was a clinician. He was That's a, right. He was really a thoroughly trained scientific medical clinician. Indeed. And he, he compiled data and supported his actions and behaviors with, uh, with good data. And, and uh, I know that in many cases it was outside of the normal, uh, the normal thought processes of the, of the uh, clinicians of the day and even today. It's so curious how there are so many allopathic physicians who are still skeptical about already proven modalities like, like chiropractic and like acupuncture when they are practiced by uh, skilled uh, practitioners. Indeed. Well, one of the chapters, the first chapter in your book uh, is optimism. And, and talk to us more about the benefits of optimism to our health. Well, the bottom line, if you look at the health and longevity of optimists versus pessimists, is uh, actually quite simple. Uh, optimists simply live longer statistically than pessimists do. Really? It's just a statistical fact. So if you've got to pick one, Anthony, just go with optimism. You're going to live longer on average. Also, optimists are healthier. Uh, they have a lower instance of practically any major disease you want to look at. Uh, and I find that people have a hard time with this. Because the prevailing attitude is that, you know, optimism and pessimism are just emotions. They just float around, you know, in your head. They don't really penetrate the rest of the body. This really is a trivialized, watered down, and very unscientific view of the power of optimism. Uh, optimists have a more responsive, perkier immune system mm -hmm. than pessimists do. They have a more stable cardiovascular system. When you expose an optimist and a pessimist to stress, you see that in the pessimist you get a higher surge of stress hormones in the blood than in the optimist. Mm -hmm. uh, the adrenaline and cortisol levels go up much more in the pessimist. You put all these things together and uh, you come out with a healthier individual on average in an optimist than a pessimist. And uh, this can sometimes be quite dramatic. You know, it comes to mind, particularly the, the election of, of 2004, when there was an awful lot of offering of fear through the media, through various modalities about gay marriage and about guns and about the terrorists. What, 
And I thought to myself, you know, I'm, I'm going to make a personal choice that I'm going to be other than fearful. I'm going to choose what I'm going to be fearful about. And even those of us uh, of a more progressive political persuasion uh, were saying to me, uh, oh, I'm so afraid if this happens or that happens. And I'm saying, look, I'm not going to buy into that. You know, I'm going to choose. Can you talk to us about, about fear? Well, I've uh, been fascinated by the role fears. I have been fascinated by the role that uh, fear plays mm -hmm. in, in learning. Uh, there's been brilliant work at Harvard uh, in recent years examining the question of why people believe things without questioning. Uh, I think every politician since Machiavelli has known this. <laughs> but our current administration really has raised this to an art form. Yes. And one of the, the conditions that causes people to believe without question more than they do in general is if they find themselves, when they're presented with this new information, in a fearful state. Fear just opens people up to practically anything. The suggestion the suge shuts down the cognitive faculty, right? It, 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 it does. There's no questioning, there's no monitoring of the data. Raises the adrenal level? It, it level well may be, adrenal. Yeah. but the, the, the people at Harvard have found that even if you tell people ahead of time when they're fearful, the next information I'm going to present to you is going to be false. If they're fearful, they believe it anyway. You cannot convince people to disbelieve something ahead of time they know is going to be false. The fear card trumps practically anything else as far as their ability to censor incoming information. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is uh, something that government has uh, raised to a pernicious malevolent level in the past few years. Well, it really, it really stimulates the limbic system and then that really takes over and predominates uh, in the cortex and the neocortex and, and uh, it's the fight or flight. Exactly. Even if uh, the government reneges on some of its uh, earlier information and say, oh, we, were, we got that wrong, or uh, people will still hang on to the, the earlier idea. Well, because uh, if there's some investment been made in that, That's right? right. That becomes who they are. You know, that's their belief, and they will defend that often uh, to ridiculous ends. An example of that was the, uh, the non-connection between Iraq and 9-11. Right. Uh, People to this day, a significant percentage surveys show, still believe that uh, many of the, uh, the terrorists who flew the planes into the buildings were Iraqis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. None were. Right. But the government uh, so confused this and terrified people when they were talking about the and connection invited. between terrorism and Iraq right. that people no longer, we have lost their ability to reconsider and refine that in retrospect. It's hard for people to go back and disbelieve something they've once believed. But now that is really the key, though, is it not, to, to uh, reconnecting, for example, with optimism. Yes, I think so. Optimism helps immunize you against the fear uh, and the distortion of learning and processing of information. It's a, it plays a terrific role in that regard. Well, I'm Anthony Wright. I'm here with my guest, uh, Dr. Larry Dossi, and we'll be back after a break. Uh, you're listening to Attunement. I'm here with my guest, Dr. Larry Dossie. Welcome back, Larry. Thanks, Anthony. I wanted to take a look at your first book, which is Space, Time, and Medicine, where you explore a number of different things that uh, were maybe not incorporated in medicine before you wrote about them, mm -hmm. pretty much. Mm -hmm. And um, the particular things are time and unity, which deals with, uh, the unity chapter deals with um, the advances in quantum physics. But tell, talk to us about time. Well, it, when you think about it, our ideas uh, in medicine that actually determine everything we do are mm -hmm. related to the way we conceive of time. Uh, what I tried to do in that book was to advance the general idea that the way you see the world working is related to how you behave as a doctor and also what you do as a patient. Mm -hmm. The simplest example, I suppose, is the old idea from Newtonian classical physics that time just flows. It's, right, it's linear. linear. Yeah. Exactly. And sooner or later, we're going to run out of it. Uh, <laughs> so there's automatically a scarcity there. Th there's a scarcity of time. We're, we're, we're moving toward the brink. Uh, the assumption of modern medicine is that everybody dies, no matter how glorious and effective our therapies become. And so we know that no matter 
how great medicine is, sooner or later we're going to fail. Mm -hmm. Everybody's going to die. So far, the statistics are overwhelmingly convincing. <laughs> uh, right. So this means that the beginning assumption of modern medicine is simply tragedy. It's all going to fail. Uh, this underlies, this pessimism underlies the whole medical agenda. Uh, and we try to deny it. We won't look at it. Uh, people are in denial of death also, uh, particularly in our feel-good society where everybody wants to stay perpetually young through one way or another. Right. And so this idea of time is embedded in our behaviors, and it's just one of these things that's so, uh, uh, that, that surrounds us so uh, thoroughly that we simply don't see it. Oh, it's completely uh, you know, unconscious. Uh, exactly. You know the old saying that we don't know who discovered water, but we can be pretty sure it wasn't a fish. I mean, if it just uh, suffuses yeah. your being, you just don't pay any attention to it. So I tried to tease out some of these issues about space and time and, and how they affect the agenda in medicine. Mm -hmm. So you have a chapter in this uh, about time. What is really going on? So what is really going on with time? Well, uh, actually... Uh, this is one of the toughest nuts for physicists to crack. Mm -hmm. Don't expect, uh, don't expect even hotshot Nobelists in physics to help you out completely where time is concerned. Uh, 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 one of the uh, greatest physicists of our generation, Richard Feynman, said, mm -hmm. "Time, don't ask me." He said, "It is too difficult." Of course, physicists talk about a lot around time, and you know make a stab at it, but it's uh, quite mysterious. Here's one thing I think we can say for certain, however. The old idea is wrong. The old idea oh. that time is, moves like a river is an idea that is not consistent with modern quantum mechanics and actually experimental physics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love to play with the ideas that quantum mechanics has given us of a non-local universe yes. where linear time and linear space are completely overcome and we get to an idea where unity enters. It enters at the subatomic level where we can do experiments that are in a field called Bell's Theorem and other areas. Yes, I was going to ask you about Bell's Theorem. Well, just uh, the snapshot version of it is that when you take two particles that have been in contact at one point in their life and separate them apart, no matter how far, even theoretically to the other ends of the universe from each other, and you change one, you change the other instantaneously and get this, to the same degree. Uh, it's as if they behave as a single particle even though they are far apart. This has proven to be mind-boggling for physics. No one knows how this happens, although there are several theories. But one wonders, one wonders whether or not something strongly analogous is not going on at the level of people. Now, Well, uh, Buddha studied <laughs> about this very point. Buddhists anticipated all of this. Uh, that's exactly right. And many of the great wisdom traditions inched up on it, mm -hmm. and I think even captured it in their mystical traditions, their yes. esoteric yes. traditions. Yep. This idea that's that... That's the big secret, that we are a single being. Exactly. Right. And so what have we done in Western religions lately? We've separated people. Well, that's such a puzzle. To objectify people, I heard a report on NPR the other day that this man had gone AWOL and because he wanted to become a medic and the, the thing that puzzled him so much was part of basic training was to objectify people. Yeah. And well, he yeah. didn't want to do that. That's, uh, well, he sounds like a mystic in training. You know, <laughs> a, a closet mystic, perhaps. Uh, yes, yes. Well, this uh, idea that unity prevails not only at the subatomic quantum level but at the macroscopic human level I think it's the idea that's going to carry the day uh, in uh, our future understanding of human beings. Mm -hmm. Anthony, I bumped into, I bumped into this uh, in my research in the field of intercessory prayer, where people... I was going to ask you about prayer, too. Yes. Uh, very strong indicators that we are connected no matter how far apart. Mm -hmm. The fact that by taking thought having a compassionate, loving intention, you can affect somebody on the other side of the earth, which has been done many times in these experiments, well, yeah. suggests that we're united. This is a non-local kind of deal. Yeah. It reminds you, doesn't it, of that Bell's theorem thing with the particles. Yeah. So quantum mechanics may not explain what's going on at our level, but by golly, it gives us a potent metaphor, a picture uh, to think with, and uh, 
we're, we're living into an image of unity, not separation. And I think we better live into it really quickly or we're not going to save the earth because we've objectified it and uh, put it out there also. Well, it's such a puzzle where people, a significant proportion of people in power these days uh, believe in Armageddon. Oh, I know. It's a, it's a real puzzle. I wanted to ask you, you know, I thought about, okay, if I am at one with the universe, if that's what the I is, and there really is no Anthony, um, well, certainly, I, then I began to think about it like, a, like the body and the immune system and about how there are uh, uh, bacteria and other uh, diseases will invade the body and then the immune system responds to take care of that. And I thought then extrapolated that to the idea of war. And I thought, well, now that's very interesting. Uh, maybe war is like an autoimmune disease. How does modern medicine deal with autoimmune diseases like lupus and even AIDS in terms of medications in a metaphor that might be useful for us to think about uh, establishing peace in the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, one, uh, one way of dealing with it is to cease separating ourselves from uh, and demonizing people who right. disagree with us. Uh, I grew up in a very bigoted, prejudiced part of the world. This was the world of uh, fundamentalist right-wing religion in central Texas, very conservative fundamentalist Christianity. Uh, but they were people of good heart. They had, were people of good heart, but there was a shadow side to it that ran right through it that was prejudicial, bigoted, uh, and everybody was just n nice to one another on top of that, but you had to be in the right group for, to, to see that happen. Uh, racism was uh, something I grew up with. It still uh, exists there. So I ha kind of have a hot button toward this business of objectifying people and either putting them in the box or out of the box. Right. Uh, that's because what, we are in the same box. It's the same box. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if the environmental movement should have taught us anything, it's that. Mm -hmm. This is the box, and we all breathe the same air. So objectifying people and demonizing people uh, is a skill that every politician since Machiavelli has known how to do, mm -hmm. and that's what our current administration is so great at doing and seeding the culture with perpetual fear and demonizing of other cultures, although they will swear up and down that they're not doing that. that that's what a lot of the results have been, you know, but in a way I'm curious also to know how does medicine deal with an autoimmune disease? Yeah. I wanted to come back to Well, that. let me tell you about one fantastically exciting way that we are, have begun to deal with them. It's to overcome the idea of separation. Well, again, I almost mean this literally. Let me give you, there's, there's an autoimmune system of class of diseases called inflammatory bowel disease. Mm -hmm. You may have heard of Crohn's disease, yes, ulcerative yes. colitis. Well, and I read about this in your book partly yeah. too, uh, in the new book. It's in the chapter on dirt and uh, creepy crawlies, bugs. Okay. If you go back to uh, the 1930s and 1940s in the United States, about 40 or 50 percent of kids had intestinal parasites, worms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But with massive deworming, almost no kids have intestinal parasites. So researchers at the University of Iowa and at Tufts University Medical Center have said this. The, our immune system evolved to uh, control these parasites, but they're no longer present. So now the immune system is attacking not the parasites, which are gone. It's attacking our own intestinal lining, giving us... Uh, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and other inflammatory bowel diseases. Here's what they've done. They've brought the parasites back into the body, uh, and they have begun to give people with inflammatory bowel disease eggs of the worms that then hatch into the little parasites. And so this sort of decoys the immune system from attacking our intestinal lining, and it once again begins to direct itself to the parasites. The remission rates in Crohn's disease have been 70%. Uh, most of those patients have total remission of Crohn's disease. That's extraordinary. Uh, actually, it's, it's, you know, it's, it looks like almost miraculous. Uh, there are no medications that can do that. So this is a kind of overcoming of the separation. Here you put the worms back into people. You know, you, 
you, you, there was a kind of an understanding, uh, a physiological conversation, in other words, between the parasites and the immune system early on. They understood each other. They evolved in balance with each other. So we got rid of the worms, we separated them, and we paid the price with these diseases. Now we're bringing things back together, and it's a fairly nice metaphor, if you ask me, for the value of unity. Now you can take this too far. I'm not saying we ought to, you know, reintroduce all sorts of organisms or bacteria into our bodies. Some are truly harmful, but this is one example where the unity metaphor, I think, really comes through. Mm -hmm. I know you talk about the, the effectiveness of leeches and the amazing uh, compounds that are found uh, in leech saliva. That's right. Uh, that blood thinners and blood thinners and and uh, that we, we we continue to learn so much in uh, pharmacology. Uh, from even some of the most toxic uh, uh, creatures on our planet. And some of the, the ones that we consider by now the most reprehensible. Uh, I write a lot about the reintroduction in modern medicine of maggots. Most people think maggots are absolutely, you know, the, the word, they're, they're, they're worms. And uh, so it comes as a shock to most people to see that they are being reintroduced reintroduced into major medical healing centers around the country. But there's nothing that does debridement with such effectiveness and such delicacy, actually. That's right. You know? Maggots are so selective. They hate normal tissue. They, <laughs> <laughs> they, they will not attack normal tissue. But you give them some compromised flesh and some good juicy infection thrown in, and they just have a good meal. Uh, one of the and then the host is left healthy. I exactly, it can be life-saving. Yeah. After 9/11, uh, Lieutenant Kevin Schaefer was burned over 50% of his body. He was in the Pentagon when the plane flew into the Pentagon. He got one of those hospital-acquired infections. The antibiotics wouldn't work. Uh, he was dying. They brought his doctor had enough openness to bring in leeches, which he knew how to obtain. And they cleaned up Schaefer's body, and he's alive. Most people credit the maggots for, uh, I think I said leeches. Right. His doctor brought in the maggots, right. uh, knowing how and where to obtain them. And most people credit the maggots with saving Kevin Schaefer's life. We're going to have to take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright, and we're here talking with my guest, uh, Dr. Larry Dossey. And we'll be right back. You're listening to Attunement. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm here talking with my guest, Dr. Larry Dossey, and welcome back, Larry. Thanks, Anthony. This hour is just flying by. I, I love it when that happens. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we were talking about then unity, and um, I wonder how we could expand this to the context of actually embracing, um, certainly not uh, the criminals or the terrorists or people trying to uh, kill each other, but how we could apply this certainly to our polarized culture in the United States and to um, unfortunately the paranoia of North Korea um, and the difficulty that's happening around the world. Well, you know, one of the uh, central te teachings of most of the great religions mm -hmm. is simply to love thy neighbor as thyself. If that's not a plea for unity, I don't know what is. Uh, uh, Jonathan Swift, who gave us Gulliver's Travels 300 years ago, I think put it best. He said, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. In other words, mm -hmm. we really haven't carried it far enough. What would it look like if we carried it far enough? Well, we would go beyond an eye for an eye. Uh, we would take literally the key central teachings of many of the great religions to overcome separation, injustice, prejudice, bigotry, hatred, and try to live up with the idea, and try to live up to the, and try to live up to the idea of honoring others as ourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because they are. They are. We have so many reminders of that, not just by virtue of the central messages from ecology these days that you can't separate from it. We can't separate from each other. We breathe the air that every, every other person breathes, breathes and the pollution that we mutually throw into it. Uh, 
so even though we would like to secede sometimes and separate ourselves from uh, others, it is a project that is bound to pit us against nature, which is always a very bad idea. Manifest destiny is a flawed doctrine. <laughs> it hasn't worked out too well in this no, country, has it? No. I wanted to also come back to um, something that I really find that you champion in your book, Beyond Words, and that's the efficacy of prayer. Tell us how we can use prayer in, a, in our daily life, but also to make the world a better place. Well, I think the key uh, understanding is that prayer is simply not uh, a neutral exercise. One ought to be careful about what one intends, wants, wishes, or prays for. Uh, it doesn't matter if people want to call it prayer or something else. Uh, I simply define prayer as communication with the absolute uh, and invite people to define what form this communication might take for themselves and also what the absolute may be. It may be God or Goddess or Allah or it may be just the sense of the universe, a sense of overpowering oneness and order and beauty and so on. Uh, the studies so far done in remote intention intercessory prayer show conclusively in my judgment that when we intend, wish, and want, uh, something is likely to happen. Uh, these are not, these are not neutral uh, endeavors. These behaviors should be taken extraordinarily seriously, uh, in my judgment. Mm -hmm. This is so potent that in these what we call randomized, double-blind studies, the effect gets through anyway, even when the person being prayed for is completely unaware that this is going on. Uh, we mentioned relevance and connections with quantum physics before. Right. If there's a godfather, so-called, in quantum physics now, it has to be Dr. Henry Staff at UC Berkeley. And Staff, Staff, his own record, is saying that our thoughts do something in the world. Our thoughts do something in the world. They are so, a resonance. They have, they have a potency. Potency they, and a momentum. Okay. I, exactly. So if quantum, if quantum physicists these days are talking about the actions of thought and intentions doing something in their world, of the very small, surely we ought to uh, give ourselves permission to look for similar phenomena in our level. And I think we've got it. We've got over 200 controlled laboratory and clinical studies now showing that prayer does affect the outcome uh, of uh, uh, growth rates in bacteria, tumor rates in people, recovery rates from heart attacks in people, and so on. Uh, People need to be aware of this. We talk about prayer as if it's kind of a, uh, a belief, you know, that, well, if it works, the effects aren't very great, so this is kind of a luxury. You can either do it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that uh, this is a potent human behavior, always has been, and now we have scientific evidence that we're not fooling ourselves when we say prayer works. So it's really communicating with that unity that we are. I think, Anthony, that it would not work unless unity uh, were a fact. I think that this is indirect evidence that unity is much more than a metaphor. It should be taken as a literal expression of the way the world works. So I wanted to talk, I'm just gonna have to take a minute there, because yeah. <laughs> that's very profound, man. Well, I think uh, the fact that we can go from uh, unity to consciousness and back again is because non-local mind is a is a factor. Non-local mind is a is infinite mind. The term non-local is just simply a fancy word for infinite. Mm -hmm. The fact that we are non-local or infinitely extended where the mind is concerned is just a promise for unity. It's a guarantee for unity because in order to be infinite there can't be any boundaries, right? You can't wall something off and have it be infinite. Mm -hmm. So if something does express itself infinitely or non-locally, that means there's no separation between it and its likeness, which is other consciousnesses. The idea of non-local mind leads us directly to the idea of unity, of oneness, mm -hmm. because minds without boundaries somehow at some level come together. Mm -hmm. This used to be called by our ancestors uh, the one mind or the world mind. Jung talked about universal consciousness. 
the oneness of all, uh, all minds. So have most of the great teachers in the esoteric traditions uh, for millennia. Well, I was going to say that um, there is a term in Buddhism called shunyata. And are you familiar with that? It means emptiness or something like that? That there is no thing that is uh, inherently um, separate. Okay. That is, that, uh, that everything is empty of separateness. Uh-huh. And that's, that's really what that is. And um, uh, Robert Thurman, who is the, the Buddhist scholar out of Columbia University, talks about how the Buddha kept trying to find himself. And the more that he kept trying to find himself, the harder it became until he finally got to the point where he discovered that he was not separate, that I'm here, for example, because you're here and you're seeing me and I, you're here because I see you, but we, we evoke each other. The interpenetration of opposites uh, right. is sometimes called, or uh, David Bohm, the great physicist, uh, was really into this image. Uh, he thought it was an accurate description of the way the world is. Mm-hmm. And Bohm often said, opposites define each other. Right. We would not talk about unhappiness. We would not talk about happiness without a corresponding sense of unhappiness. Mm-hmm. We require opposites because they come together in unity and define each other. And yet, like I want to come back to the political climate, if we could somehow say that uh, even though you are opposite of me, you are me, and I, I need you. Yes. And rather than try to annihilate you, how can I, through perhaps the agency of prayer, how, how can I live with you and well, love you, for that matter? Yes, I think that's exactly right. But the political climate lately has been to divide people over issues uh, such as gay marriage, as we all know, and uh, other issues that uh, something tells me uh, are being even now concocted for the next elections. I wanted to also come to your new book called The Extraordinary Healing Power of Ordinary Things. Why these ordinary things? because they are so valuable. They make huge contributions to our health. Uh, and most of us simply pass them by in favor of uh, high-tech, usually very expensive approaches <laughs> to health care. You know, as well as I, that most people in this country now think that when you really get into trouble, somebody with a white coat and a stethoscope around their neck is who you ought to rely on. Well, that's an archetypal image that people are, you know, Fix this, take a pill, then you'll be better. You're the expert, you're the pro. And so we give away our power and responsibility, and that needs to be rethought. Because most of us, 90% of the time, don't live our lives in that kind of medical space. We don't need high tech, high, uh, 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 very expensive care. We we need something less lethal, less expensive, (laughs) and uh, something a lot less dramatic. And so that's the the real premise of this book is that those things actually exist. Uh, They're out there in plain sight. Mm -hmm. We just have to wake up to them. Well, that was one of the things in your introduction. You said if if God wanted to hide something, or if you want to hide something, leave it in plain sight. And these things have been really ignored by by many of us. Um, Well, we're going to take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm here with my guest, Dr. Larry Dossie, and you're listening to Attunement. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm here with my guest, Dr. Larry Dossie. And welcome back, Larry. The, Thanks, Anthony. The hour is going right along here. And I wanted to talk to you about some of these common things. We've already talked about optimism and dirt, but what utility is forgetting? It's your second chapter. I think forgetting is essential to fulfilled living. Uh, here's the way it works. The way forgetting becomes valuable in human life is when we link it with forgiveness. You know, we have this, uh, okay. this, this phrase, forgive and forget. Mm-hmm. And people who cannot do that run into problems, both individually and as a culture. Just for, as an example, the Bosnians couldn't forget that they lost the Battle of Kosovo in the 14th century and couldn't forgive. So we had the Bosnian War. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you flip back. Germany couldn't forgive and forget that it lost World War I, which led again to, to, to another world war. We need to forget. We need to forgive, not in the sense of becoming amnesic for certain events, but, right, right. but eliminating them from controlling our life. 
and we, we can't to make the choice yeah. to, to make the choice uh, absolutely there are now certain physiological expressions of uh, forgiveness that these forgiveness researchers have worked out mm -hmm. people who can't forget and forgive have a higher concentration in the body and the blood of stress hormones uh, the, the inability to forgive and forget is not good for your health mm -hmm. these people pay, pay, pay a price uh, in terms of poor health statistically in the long run uh, anger hostility and holding and, on to and, that and so anger on. and yeah exactly yep. uh, so this is not just a psychological issue this forgetting issue when it's paired with forgiveness one of the things that you just mentioned about stress hormones I'm a piano technician and one of the things that I do is I manage tension in the piano and is there good stress and bad stress well it's called eustress good stress has a term uh, exactly eustress used eu stress really? eu is the is uh, derived from a latin term meaning normal uh, we think stress all stress is abnormal but eustress is says something differently stress can be uh, good for you a certain type at any rate uh, I think life would be very dull and boring without a little tension in it. Certainly, the <laughs> piano wouldn't sound right. Uh, right. We wouldn't have musical right. in stringed instruments without tension. But I think even of the simplest example of a child mastering gravity, and there is a particular bodily um, tension or tone, I guess I would say, uh, in, and a, a, a use in that body mastering motility uh, in a gravitic field. But there's also got to be um, a normal healthy stress and how do we attend to that? Well, I think the breakthrough is just simply recognizing its value that sort of takes the oh. that takes the grimness away uh -huh. if we understand the way it uh, becomes a value in our life uh, as an example consider athletics consider running a marathon if you don't train you're not going to finish mm -hmm. uh, it's not pleasant it's stressful going through all the training and the fact is that that's absolutely required for success uh, later on in finishing uh, the task of running the marathon. Mm -hmm. You take the, the helpful stress away and the unpleasantness, and what do you have left? Well, you have somebody that isn't any good at a marathon, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And I see these unpleasant, stressful sort of situations as training opportunities in life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, teaching moments, you know, oh, they, it's they, true. they are opportunities to acquire wisdom, if you will, to get smarter, to get, get better, to get healthier, and so on. Can they break you in the process? Well, of course, but uh, that's uh, part of what we call life. Well, and perhaps they would be less prone to becoming harmful if we were attendant to tracking on how we're one being, and that it's not the stress can be distributed then more than just in my body and and then letting allowing the claim of my body to to dissipate right you know, so that it isn't just my body and people can get into a vicious cycle about being stressed they can get stressed oh, and about being, being stressed right and so they you know they wind wind up chasing their tails adding to the problem of being stressed one of the great tools that's arisen in the culture recently about how to deal with that is mindfulness meditation where you just sort of you adopt a psychologically neutral position where you just simply observe what's happening in your life. The other way is to get aggravated and hostile by the fact that you're being insulted by being stressed by life. You know, then you, you develop hostility toward being stressed. Life is unfair. And so you begin to chase uh, this. In a, and it builds upon itself. It builds upon and there's itself. a tremendous momentum. And I think that the, the utility of that, the healthful effects of meditation was first, as I recall, uh, talked about by Dr. Herbert Benson in the relaxation response. He put it on the mouth, Anthony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to also ask you about Ilya Prigogine and uh, dissipative structures. Well, Prigogine won the Nobel Prize. He was a, a Belgian uh, scientist, mathematician, uh, and someone who actually spanned many domains. Uh, you might be interested in the fact that he was a gifted pianist. Oh, also. really? Yes, uh, classical pianist. I didn't very know gifted. that. And so he is the person who gave us the uh, concept that's been widely talked about of uh, order out of chaos, uh, dissipative structures, 
how you can't predict the outcome of a future event from looking at the chaos in the present I'm a moment. student of chaos theory. Well, how things iterate, you know, well, and there's period three phenomena. Well, pay your respects to Prigogine because he was one of the people who first teased that out of nature, and he was a giant of a man. If anybody really deserved the Nobel Prize, it was Ilya Prigogine. Mm -hmm. So there are naturally organizing structures, and you're saying also, I think, in your book, w with the notion, the key tenets of optimism and prayer that we can come to uh, having a natural um, jubilant outlook to life in, a, in an, an ongoing momentum. Exactly. And also, some of the things that we, we regard as chaotic in our life, such as unhappiness, also set the stage for further order and wisdom in our life. Mm -hmm. Because there are cycles. It might happen to be a down cycle, but that also implies the up cycle. And that comes back then to this notion of life and death. That uh, one of the things that Robert Thurman talks about is to live each moment as if we will be dying in the next. But that also really affirms the preciousness, preciousness of human life. Well, I think so also. You know, one of the great Buddhist sayings uh, that I'm particularly fond of is, if you die before you die, then when you die, you will not die. In other words, if we just simply witness it and pay attention to it, then we will be prepared for death when it happens. I always like to link this back to non-local mind because mm -hmm. non-local mind that's infinite in time is mind that in some sense is immortal and eternal. Uh, I think that's quite comforting for those of us uh, who uh, know that uh, the statistics are pretty convincing that we will die one day. So uh, I found great consolation in this idea of non-local mind and its connection to eternality and immortality. And that brings us to the idea of mystery. And is that, uh, that's one of the closing chapters in your book is Mystery and Miracles. Talk to us about mystery. Well, mystery is uh, something that we need more of. Our psychological predispositions are the exact opposite, though. We prefer habits and routines and ruts which are utterly predictable. They and are logic the and opposite. stuff, and you talk about Gödel's theorem, speaking that we cannot, logic does not have, is not the end all, be all to a human beingness. Absolutely, an absolutely uh, adequate logic is just, uh, it doesn't exist. It's a useful it's a, tool. It's a useful tool to do certain things. It's a limited tool uh, as well, but mystery is crucial for people's health in the following way: uh, if you look at what people do during middle age. Uh, in terms of behaviors and habits and correlate that with how well they preserve their mental faculties as they get older, whether or not they get Alzheimer's and things like that, you will find that people who are open to mystery in midlife preserve their mental faculties better as they get older. Really? This has been looked at in tens of thousands of women, and I'm sure it applies to men as well. Women who read books, uh, who worked crossword puzzles, who did jigsaw puzzles, in other words, allowed a little uncertainty and mystery in their life, and those kinds of behaviors were women who preserved their mental faculties. It, it's as if the brain, the body, likes the little, the immersion in little mysteries as we go. Well, on. we come back then to the notion of healthy, healthy stress, and then resolution. Yes, yes, that's ex that's exactly right. If we find ourselves in habits and ruts and routines, bells and whistles ought to go off. You need more mystery oh, in your life. Yeah, you know, you need to yeah. take some risks. You need to get involved in situations that you cannot predict the outcome of. That's the definition of mystery. Well, you, you have a whole don't chapter. know where it's going. You have a chapter on risk. That's, health, that's right. The healthiness. And I can't imagine, and I wanted to ask you about this, what it must have been like to be a Vietnam surgeon in the field. Well, that was risk, that's for sure. I must say that I did that at a time in my life where uh, I was uh, quite naive about uh, the mechanics of war and politics of that generation. I'd had my head in a book and in the hospital up until that point in my life, and right. uh, I did not do that with a great deal of insight, this business of going to war. My goodness, what a, what a sudden education you must have had. It was, and uh, I wouldn't take anything for it in retrospect, however, having wound up in it, because I... Speaking of uh, uh, difficulties making you wiser, I am much wiser uh, as a result of that, I think, in, in 
interpreting the madness that's going on in our culture now uh, with the war. Well, uh, how do you interpret that? What Are there some things that well, you can offer to us? I think that we have to admit that uh, war is one of the most seductive influences that is possible for young men to uh, experience. Uh, there's this saying that every generation must have its war, mm -hmm. and we seem to live that out, and we seem never to learn. And the question for me is, why don't we learn? The fact is that we're biologically, as young men, young males, we're bi biologically wired to do that. And by golly, it seems that we will do that no matter what. But it's not the young men that start the wars. It's the old guys in power that have sold out that use the young men to go and do their bidding, whether it has any logical basis or not. Well, I know. <laughs> but the fact is that the cannon fodder is, is always the young kids because they're the ones who get sucked into that. They're the ones who have the surging hormones, and they are the ones that make the whole thing go round. If somehow we could uh, uh, appeal to their sense of, of of the need for adventure and expression of courageousness and so on, which so is not all bad, right? But we, we, if we could come up with another form of warriorship for our young men, mm -hmm. uh, instead of killing others, mm -hmm. this would be the way to go about it. There can be as intense an experience in. Uh, confronting oneself perhaps and and some of the risks that it takes to to grow that takes courage. as a human person absolutely but i think uh the culture pushes kids into war we train our children with tiny little war games called videos video uh, games and and so on so we in subtle ways we push them toward it and we say it's okay uh and obviously uh obviously we pay the price well, I thank you so much for being willing to talk with me and, and talk with our audience. And, and is there a way it's, to... It's dossydossy.com. D-O-S-S... Oh, two dossies? Two dossies, because my wife, my dear wife, and I share that website. Oh, tell me about your... My wife is a nurse, cardiovascular nurse. She's one of the best-known holistic nurses in the country. She's mm -hmm. the author of 23 books. Good Lord. Many of which are award-winning, even international book prize-winning books. Uh, her name is Barbara, and Barbie does in nursing, and the world of nursing, pretty much what I do in the world of medicine. Well, if she comes to the Bay Area, I would be delighted to talk with her. I'd really like to have her on this show. I'll bet we can make that happen. That would be great. Well, thank you so much, Larry. I Thanks, really appreciate Anthony. it. And I'm Anthony Wright. We've been talking with my guest, Dr. Larry Dossie, and you're listening to Attunement. <laughs>